Welcome to Poetry Spotlight, presented by the Ohio Poetry Association. I am your host, Jeremy Dusek, and with us today is Carrie Gunter Seymour. Carrie is the current Poet Laureate for the state of Ohio, and her list of accomplishments is long. A talented, empathetic activist and ninth generation Appalachian, her work cultivates community connections and drives effective change. She is the editor for the Women of Appalachia Project Anthologies, and her poem, Gojo, went viral, raising thousands of dollars for her local food pantry. Her work was selected by former U.S. Poet Laureate Natasha Trethaway to be included in the PBS American Portrait crowdsourced poem, Remix, For My People. Her publication history is every bit as extensive and lauded as you might expect. Her current collection, A Place So Deep Inside America It Can't Be Seen, won the 2020 Ohio Poet of the Year Award and was longlisted for the Jakar Press Julie Suck Award. She is the winner of the 2021 Lascaux Prize in Poetry, and Carrie Gunter Seymour is a 2021 recipient of an Academy of American Poets Laureate Fellowship, a $50,000 grant made possible with funds from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. To learn more, please visit CarrieGunterSeymourPoet.com. Carrie, thank you so much for joining us. Oh my goodness. Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> That's very exciting. <laughs> well, um, you are a ninth generation Appalachian and your professional work really does. It reflects a profound and really a strong awareness of your own, of your heritage. So I want to ask, when did this awareness start and what do you want to communicate with your work? Well, um, the awareness started uh, as a small child because um, I was raised in rural Ohio, southeastern Ohio, which a lot of people do not realize that a quarter of Ohio rests right inside Appalachia proper. Um, and then we have pockets of Appalachians throughout Ohio that are uh, their families outmigrated. Uh, during the Depression, uh, throughout the time of the, you know, the Second World War, and then again in the 50s when big coal pulled out practically overnight um, as um, oil and gas and nuclear power were coming in and rising, um, you know, in their efficiencies. Um, so I was raised uh, on my grandparents' farm. I say that. I mean, we had a home. <laughs> I, lived, I lived in a home in Amesville, Ohio, which is a very small village just outside of Athens, Ohio, where Ohio University is. Sure. And I spent all the time I possibly could on my grandparents' farm. And this was my mother's people. And um, it formed me. They were sustaining farmers. Uh, my grandfather raised all, uh, practically all the food between him and my grandmother, all the food that was eaten uh, by the family. Um, you know, uh, they were both excellent horticulturalists and my grandfather was excellent at husbandry and raised all kinds of critters, pigs, um, sheep, uh, you know, cows, they milked cows. Um, I remember uh, my grandmother churning butter. I always called it pig butter because it always tasted a little bit sour. I don't know why pig butter. Don't ask me why I was a child. But it was a little bit more sour than store-bought butter, you know, because they didn't put all the crap in it, you know. It was just purely cream and a little salt and, um, you know, churned with love, as I like to say. But um, so, and, and um, I was raised with certain morals. Um, I was raised in the barn. I got to see life, birth, death. Um, 
I was raised in a community of other kids who, uh, you know, were farm farmers' children. Um, it was a, a, a good uh, growing area, and um, the Grange was strong at that time. And everybody went to the county fair and took their their projects, including their animals and our baked goods. And um, so I grew up that way, swimming in the creeks. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we would go outside in the morning and not come in until lunchtime and gobble down our lunch and go back out and not come in until supper time and beg to go out after dinner. We, we were never in the house if we could help it. And, um, and then I, as an adult, I struggled because I just didn't fit in anywhere. You know, I just didn't fit in until I figured out, oh, I see. It's because I'm Appalachian. <laughs> and I am very different. My culture is very different. We are a little rough around the edges and um, we like to laugh a lot and we like to laugh loud. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and we, we really try to find goodness and kindness in everyone. And most times I do. Um, and then I started looking into my people and I was able to get back to the 1300s on my daddy's side. And that's when I figured out that my people left Berkshire, England at the turn of the 17th century and ended up in Henrico, Virginia. And there were plenty of jobs in iron and coal at that time. And I'm assuming that's why they, they landed there or ended up there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do know four generations later, uh, my people were farming, my daddy's people and my mother's people. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's just, it's a fascinating story because there are all kinds of stories that I discovered. The Gunter family just kept immaculate records. And so I have all these fabulous stories about the women in my family. And I come from a long line of very strong, uh, dedicated women who, um, who worked so hard intended the land and my grandmother was no exception she was actually my step-grandmother and she taught me uh, between her and my mother taught me what I know about the earth how to tend the earth how to care for it how to plant the seeds when to plant the seeds when to harvest Um, these are all things that were taught to me Um, and the methods used were, were not the standard, but there is science behind them. My, my great, my uh, step grandmother planted by the signs. She knew when it was time to plant the seeds. And she also knew when it was time to plant, you know, the, the, the uh, plants on top of the ground. So um, it depended on where the moon was, you know, as to when you, when you planted, when you harvested certain things, um, And so I realized the reason I feel so different around other folks is I haven't really integrated. I'm still very Appalachian. I'm still, no matter where I am, I'm still on the farm, you know, and I want to (laughs) be, that's the difference too. I want to be, I want to be connected to the land. I want to, you know, I want my fingers in it every chance I get. Um, I want that morality. I want that pride in being an honorable person and caring about my neighbors and caring very much about my community. And I think that's probably where I get this service component of wanting to serve um, because of that, because um, as, as, as 
far back as even just my, my grandmother's generation, you know, they depended on one another, each farm and the other farm sort of depended on one another because if one went down, the other suffered, you know, everybody kind of had to help each other out and look after each other. And they all went to church together and they all, like I said, you know, participated in the fair together and all these things that, um, that, that built strong communities. And I often say today that um, for some of us, our family is not just our family, but it's people that we love dearly in our communities. And so that's what I realized made me so different. Like I said, I'm, I'm just always going to be on the farm. Yep. Would you mind reading a poem? Cause I think having listeners, having this in mind, they'll be able to hear it in your work. Well, I hope so. I, I, I picked a, a short little poem to start with. This is called uh, Vernal Equinox. I've been thinking about last times. I never knew were the last. Grandma cooing me unconscious. Daddy whistling me home to supper. My toddler's toothless grin. Tiny fingers clenching wildflowers. The last time I prayed, desperate for those departed, how they went ahead of us flying. Tonight, the Big Dipper balances on its handle. Tepid tree frogs peep songs of resurrection. One morning soon, I'll eat a good breakfast, fill a water bottle, pack a book. Walk the fence row into the holler. Rest beneath the eagle's favored perch. Shake off this inexplicable sadness. Two cinder blocks where lungs ought to be. I'm let spring hold on to me for a while. That's beautiful. When, when you write, you know, you're so connected into who you are and who your family is. Do you feel your family when you write? Do you feel your family when you read? Absolutely. I think that's what's so amazing about our culture is um, the ties to our past and, and present are, are uh, sort of interchangeable. And I do, I hear, um, I honestly, hear voices sometimes sometimes the poems will come to me so clearly that they are in someone's voice um but it's that um i'm trying to think uh, you know here I, i'm a poet and i know lots of words <laughs> what is what is the word i'm looking for here um i guess it's just just amazing love you know i was just so loved and I was so lucky to be so loved by my grandparents and my parents. And even though they had their issues, my daddy was a World War II vet. And I know now he suffered terribly from PTSD. And my mother was bipolar, but you know what? They made it and they, uh, they, they made the best life they could for me and my sister. And uh, having my grandparents to supplement that. And so I always felt like I had somewhere to land. 
and that there was someone there to catch me. And I think that's just so important. And I think that's why I write so much about this land and our people, because that's so important to us. Family is like just number one. You know, I talk about the land a lot, but really family um, is the thing that binds us. Um, And like I said, sometimes our families grow to include others that maybe aren't our blood relatives, but have become our family uh, because um, of their importance to our lives and that they help ground us. And, um, and we know they'll catch us too and vice versa. So yes, I do. I hear voices. Now you think I'm crazy. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> My voices are telling me not to say anything. That's <laughs> You've got good voices. <laughs> Charles needs to quiet down up here. Is it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that you know, because you had you had mentioned to the with an interview to the Gyroscope Review that you write about you know PTSD and soldiers going off, and you had actually said at one point that if you know somebody from Appalachia they will know somebody who has gone off and served that it's, it's very common for. So, you know, I was originally going to ask you about, uh, you know, protectiveness of the community and, and trying to take care of your own. Um, but you, you know, you had said your, your, your family had served. Um, how has, have you, you know, processed that and how do you put it into your writing? Because it's, it's gotta be so deeply personal to see other families struggle to talk to people who, you know, my family has veterans in it. And I know, you know, I have uncles who have been in active combat and it's sometimes, you know, they get, they get, they withdraw and they don't know how to talk about those things. So how do you share with the world in a way that you think is, you know, respectful and doing it justice and, you know, what, what strategies and approaches do you use? Well, uh, this is a strategy I use in all my writing because I can't speak for others. Now I sometimes speak for the dead, um, but that's because I have, um, I have, I have some history behind it. Um, so when I write about military service, I write, from myself. I write my own stories, my own feelings. Uh, My first chat book was titled Serving, and it is full of poetry that I wrote uh, during my son's deployments and a little bit after. Um, And it is very personal, but it was also therapeutic. And I am a firm believer in, in particularly poetry as therapy. Uh, it certainly helped me. I started out journaling and someone said to me, and it wasn't helping. I was journaling, <laughs> but I was still a mess. I was still a mess. And I was one of those people that was going to the gym a couple times a day, running, 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 lifting weights, just trying to get rid of my anxiety, you know, just doing, just running myself literally ragged just so I could sleep a little bit. And I, and I was journaling. And someone said to me, and I always feel so bad because I can't remember exactly who said it, but they said, you should try writing poetry because it makes you focus in so tightly and um, and helps bring order to the chaos. Now, those are my words. That's what it does for me. If things are chaotic for me, if I sit down and write about them and organize them, and by that, I mean, just getting them out 
on a piece of paper or on my screen. Mm -hmm. And then I start moving things around and organizing them and analyzing them. Um, it calms me and it starts to make more sense. Whereas if it's just in my head, and I don't know about you, but in my head, there's this other little voice in there that's always saying, you're stupid, you're wrong. What are you thinking? What are you doing? You know, that, that, that counter ego that's always running around and they're trying to, to mess with you. Um, so when I get, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when you get it out on a piece of paper or on your screen, then it's, you've got proof. <laughs> the proof is right there. You wrote it down. You wrote the facts as you can remember them. So I start with that. Um, I can only write my own truths, right? I can't try to, it is my belief. I can't write for anyone else. I can't possibly say how other military families feel. I just know how I feel. And that's how I write them. Um, and then of course I always include a sense of place. I just can't help but do that. That's, I write from that where I'm grounded and I'm grounded here in Appalachia and I'm grounded, you know, in, in this family. Um, and so all of that comes out in the work. Um, it, it is, it's painful work, but, um, in my early work was just horrible but it was, you know, it was heartfelt. And, um, and a lot of people helped me along the way. Uh, some being really cruel. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that either, you know, because someone has to have the, uh, you know, the audacity to stand up and say, you know, your work's really bad. You need to read some books and you need to, if you really want to do this, you know, you're going to have to get serious. Cause I, you know, I'm not trained. I'm not a, I'm not a, my degrees are in art, you know, my master's degree is in photography. So anyway, um, so that's always the, the approach I have taken is I write from my experiences, from my sense of place. And I don't try to put words in other people's mouth, particularly concerning military service, because it is such a private thing. And I would never want to speak for my father or my son or anyone else that I know that has served because I couldn't possibly, I just couldn't possibly, it would not be correct. Not that it would be incorrect. You know what I'm saying? It just wouldn't yeah. be valid because no one else can feel what they're feeling. And like you said, so many times people can't even speak about it anyway. And why would you want to try to speak for them or force them into you know, speaking about something they don't want to, but I overwhelmingly needed to, uh, I needed that outlet. And so when it came time that, um, to send the chat book out, I, I asked permission of my son and he said, he just didn't, he just never wanted to read it is all he requested. Sure. And, and so, uh, that was our deal. And, uh, and I sent it out and it actually, uh, uh, uh was picked up. It got a runner up uh, from the Yellow Chair Review um, and ended up getting printed about a year and a half later, I think. Um, and sometimes I regret maybe that because, uh, you know, I hope my son doesn't somehow stumble upon it and have any uh, bad reactions to it. There's nothing in there that would hurt him personally by any means, but, um, but uh, to avoid, you know, just... Uh, my pain maybe is what I'm thinking of, you know, 
so that's that's how I broach that. And 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 there is an inordinate number of Appalachians who have served when you match that with the rest of the country. And a lot of people might say, well, that's because op- there's less opportunity in Appalachia. And that's not true either. <laughs> it's not true. There are poor folks. There are uh, farm folks. There are, um, you know, all kinds of folks all over this country. The difference is we are an honorable, honorable people who love the land and we love our country. And for many, many generations, we really felt that it was our duty to serve. And that's the difference. That's the difference in that number. And then a handful of the folks, yes, it was about getting out of, you know, rural America. But overall, it was about honor and and duty to serve. So I hope I asked actually answered your question. <laughs> <laughs> you did. I, you know, I, the reason I was curious is because I think a lot of people, when, whether they go to write about, say, a suicide, you know, something or, or, you know, poverty or something that it may have affected them deeply and infringes upon their life, but is at its core, someone else's deal. And, and it's, it's tough because you know not everybody's a poet and those people should have representation. But at the same time, there's always that conflict inside. Like, am I doing this justice? Am I doing the right thing by, by putting these words in this order down? And I, th- I think that's something that anybody who tries to write any sort of activist or, or outwardly empathetic poetry is, wants to know about. And I think, you know, that your position, you, you being so deeply ingrained with the community and doing so much work to write for others who need it, uh, is, it's good to hear that kind of opinion on the subject. If, if, that, if that made sense, my, my kind of show off <laughs> No, I think this is all good. I think we're having a wonderful conversation. Which brings to, you know, being Poet Laureate of Ohio, what has that perspective given you? What can you well, say about the Ohio writing community? I am so proud of Ohio. I'm so proud of Ohio. Before becoming Ohio Poet Laureate, I was the Poet Laureate of Athens, Ohio, and I said Athens County. And when I took that position, I thought, I mean, how silly of me, that I knew most of the people writing in Athens, Ohio. And I was absolutely wrong (laughs) and I'm very pleased to say the same thing has happened with statewide I just I just meet people over and over and over and I know that sounds crazy to say that because we have been in lockdown for nearly a year or more Mm -hmm. just starting to come out but I have done I, I over last June is when uh, the governor announced my appointment and I've done, I'm going to say 120 events uh, via, you know, virtually. Yeah. Uh, I've been all over the state. I've been in Kentucky, Illinois. I've been in West Virginia. I've been, you know, I, and I've just gone and visited and spent time. Uh, I worked uh, with teens. I've worked with incarcerated teens. I've worked with incarcerated women and men. Uh, I've worked with women in recovery. Um, you know, I've visited many open mics and, um, and reading series um, and just had an absolutely fabulous time. Um, 
I host uh, a reading series of my own called Spoken and Heard, and I've, you know, I've been bringing in people from all over the country virtually, and now uh, we're going to begin hybrid events. So those, uh, it's, yeah, um, that's awesome. Yeah, our, <laughs> yes, live, you know, because some of it will be live, and we're always so excited. But um, Stewart's Opera House in Nelsonville, Ohio, is the, the venue, and they're so generous in donating the space and. And, um, you know, they're going to be doing all the recording and they have been, mm -hmm. uh, but they're going to continue that. And so we'll have our, some, many of our Ohio guests will come in and read live. And then our guests from um, throughout the country, uh, many of which are from Appalachia, mm -hmm. um, will be hybrid. And so we'll still be able to have all those wonderful uh variety of voices but I'm very careful to have lots and lots of Ohio voices as well um uh, for instance coming up and I don't know when the podcast is going to air but I, I don't think it'll be before this uh, you know Philip Metris is going to be reading uh Ruth Awad Marcus Jackson um these are voices that um that we all know and love Hanif uh has was a past guest Maggie Smith um you know, but I've also had people like Allison Joseph come in, Allison Luterman from California, and then going dipping down to the South, Robert Gibe and um, Annette uh, Clapsaddle um, coming up as Michael Crawley. And, and what I'm proud of is these are all uh, voices that we're not hearing enough of. These are our, um, you know, our... Um, Asian American voices, our Black American voices, our LGBTQ, our folks with uh, developmental differences, uh, those of us who are getting a little older, um, all of these voices, I'm so proud to be able to bring together uh, for all of us to hear. And so that's been a real joy to be doing that. And this is, I think, my fourth year to be doing that. So I started that as Coat Laureate of Athens County and have continued that and grown it uh, to cover the entire state. Um, and then a friend and I have a little uh, open mic that we started because of the pandemic and it's totally virtual and uh, we do it once a month and it's so fun. So we started bringing in a featured guest for that and um, we just have the best time. And it's one of, the, seriously, one of the best open mics around and it's called the Athens County and Friends poets and writers and we started as a little face facebook group and it's just gone crazy it's just it's just wonderful so it just shows you what you can do you know if you're willing to you know put forth the effort in a few hours of your time and invite people in to read their work um and it and it's been it it was a lifesaver for all of us to be able to hear the, these beautiful voices um during the pandemic and then um one other thing I do is the Women of Appalachia Project, which is not necessarily a Poet Laureate Project, but they all interlace. Um, and this is actually its 13th year. And I do an anthology uh, for that that is printed by Sheila Nagig Editions, and it's called Women Speak. And it's full of uh, women's voices from all over Appalachia. And Ohio, because remember, Ohio is in Appalachia proper, and <laughs> right. we have pockets. We have pockets of Appalachian women throughout Ohio. Now, here's the very best thing. 
You mentioned earlier about the $50,000 grant mm -hmm. from the Academy of American Poets and what that is going to be used for is to do yet another book. And the title is, I Thought I Heard a Cardinal Sing, Ohio's Appalachian Voices. So anyone connected with Ohio and Appalachia are invited to submit poetry for this book. And I'm so excited about it because I know how many Appalachian poets there are in Ohio proper right now. And many who have lived here in the past or had people who've lived here. Um, so I'm really, really excited to put this book together, which be, it's going to be the first of its kind. There is no other book that I could find that is focused specifically on Ohio's Appalachian population. And so, you know, um, the Foundation for Appalachia Ohio has gotten involved because they want to put uh, copies of these in uh, schools oh, throughout Ohio. The project itself will be putting a copy of the book in every library in Ohio. Um, and so we're going to get these voices out. And when I say connected with Ohio, like now, Jeremy, you know me and I'm Appalachian. If you'd like to write a poem about me, I think we might be able to accept that in my book. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but I am serious. If, yeah. If you want to write about a historical figure, you know, or you want to write about the land or a landmark, you know, because obviously Ohio uh, coal mining, uh, the, the mining disaster right over in Millfield, Ohio, which is not 20 minutes from me, um, you know, those kinds of things I'm looking for as well. And so really, it can include every single person who lives in Ohio, every single poet is welcome to send poems concerning Appalachian, Ohio. And uh, the submission window is going to open on August 1st, which is very soon. And uh, they can find the link to the information for all of this on my website, which you did mention earlier. But I'll say again, if you don't mind, That's Carrie Gunter Seymour, po yeah, Carrie Right on the front door at the bottom, there's a button to click on. It says, I thought I heard a cardinal sing. And it's very simple, uh, you know process to uh, upload your work to submittable and our jurors are um, connected to Ohio but one lives in Kentucky and one lives in West Virginia just to keep things fair and um, and so I invite every single Ohio poet uh, to submit work in honor of Appalachian Ohio and I'm really excited about that so so I'll be doing two books this year one for the Women of Appalachia Project one for the Academy of American Poets. And then I, silly me, I think I'm still going to get a book of my own out this year. We'll see whether that actually happens. I have time for that as well. That is one crazy schedule. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. That's astounding. I, I hope, I hope people submit to that because it is a very important project. And I think that, yeah, any, any time, any type of thing that, that promotes Ohio Ohio's community, you know, any group of people in it is is worth checking out, and definitely oh, agree. part of being. A, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, what would you say are some of Ohio's challenges in terms of the poetry community? And like, now that you have seen the Ohio's community through the lens of COVID, and things are kind of opening up, and you're starting to plan in-person events again, um, what would you say? You know, do you see any solutions, like long-term solutions, that could help the community to continue to coalesce? Because 
you know, I was also astounded. Like when I started, you know, working with the OPA, just both on this project and with, you know, their, their management team doing stuff. I could not believe how many writers were in Ohio. And I think that raising awareness is important. So I'm wondering if you had like long-term ideas that could really send the train down the tracks. I don't know that that's under my bailiwick to, um, uh, to think in terms of, you know, how would you create a database to keep, you know, people connected and, and really track who is a poet in Ohio? And I, I know that Ohio Anna has done some extensive work in mapping out um, locations of many authors throughout Ohio, and a lot of states do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, that's a huge effort. It's a huge effort. Um, you know, it would be an opportunity for OPA to write another grant. Uh, to perhaps think about a call for poet name location. Also, I don't know if everybody knows this, but Ohio Anna has a database and you can send them your information and they will uh, archive you and you are on, then on their records as an Ohio poet or Ohio uh, fiction, nonfiction, whatever your genre happens to be. That said, I think what I love about going forward is we have all experienced, I think almost everybody has experienced the virtual uh, process. And I think what I love about the idea, again, moving forward is the hybrid. Because like you, the travel uh, can become cumbersome. You'd mentioned that traveling uh, was difficult for you because you have children and sometimes you would love to go to an OPA workshop. They are free. You know, what more could you ask? You have stunning Ohio poets who are giving workshops to, you know, our membership for free, but you can't get there because of your kids. You you know, your kids need um, need you home on a Saturday. Um, So the fact that we have the opportunity to do things hybrid, in in other words, those who want to go can be on site and those of us who cannot can visit virtually. And I think that is going to be paramount to connecting a lot more people, uh, getting way more people in the room, so to speak, even though some of them are going to be, or maybe even the majority of them might end up being virtual. For me in Southeastern Ohio, to go to anything OPA is at least an hour and a half or more investment in one way one way and if something's in Cleveland it's a whole day for me you know I've got a three to four hour drive and then the event and then the drive home and so um, for me the the option of perhaps attending virtually would be a huge asset to me Um, that doesn't mean I'm going to do every single one of them that way you know um, I might say this year I'm going to do I'm going to do one in Columbus and one in Cleveland and one in Toledo and then that leaves me free to do a few others virtually. And also for some people, the cost of travel is a little bit more than their budgets can handle as well. So I'd love to see that happen anywhere it possibly can going forward. And obviously OPA is in a position to do this, I think, because of folks like yourself who are very technically astute and know about, you know, setting up Zoom and, um, and, and just the, the technical um, um, little 
uh, do dollars that have to happen in order to have a, a hybrid event. I do know that uh, they got a grant for some recording equipment, which I think will come in very handy uh, for the idea of, of having hybrid events. Um, I think the other thing that's wonderful about OPA is the leadership. I think every single person serving, including yourself, are genuinely kind and, and dedicated people knowledgeable um, and so so freely giving of themselves and their time and they they care they truly care that they are offering quality workshops that they are offering quality opportunities to the membership and I'll tell you what it is the most reasonable membership in any state you know for us to pay what we pay I I have um belonged in memberships in other states, and they can be up to 50 to $75 a year or more for the membership fees. And we are, we are so lucky, um, you know, and I know that uh, we have folks who, who um, are regular grant uh, givers to us at OPA, and yeah. we're so grateful to them. And that's why I think that, um, that we are able to keep uh, the membership fees low but again, I think it's the stunning leadership um, without Chuck and uh, Suzanne and Ricky and, you know, Karen. And I mean, just just the whole group. Uh, it's just it's just uh, so Sa- I don't want to miss her. Um, it's just it's just an amazing group of people um, who just give and give and give and give. And it it's just it just makes for marvelous things happening. And and I'm just really proud to be a member. Yeah, I, I'd like to echo that statement because that they are astounding people. Every single last one of them. They they just, you know, they never ask twice. They just they're they they just want to see awesome poetry and they want to elevate the poets who produce awesome poetry. And I think that's a noble thing. And I, I forgot to mention Steve Abbott, who every year does every publication. Uh, we know he does Common Threads and any other publication that comes along. You know, he offers his expertise in editing and putting the books together and getting them ready to go out to print. That is no small job, I can tell you. No, no, I, <laughs> you know? I do, <laughs> I do a, a yearly, uh, anthology for my workshop. And that's a pain. Uh-huh. In fact, this year I'm asking yeah. for help. I'm going to say, hey, does anyone want to help me with this? Because it's a lot of time and it's, you know, it, is. it can be overwhelming. It is. <laughs> right. And dedicated. And Steve's done that for many years. And for many years, Patricia Black uh, uh, handled all of the contests. And, you know, she's been amazing. I think she, I think she's stepping down. I don't want to overstep myself by saying that, but I think um, or, or she's getting near the time when she's ready to step down, but she's handled that the Ides of March contest for year after year after year after year. Um, so again, such dedicated people. It's just, it's, um, it's heartwarming, and um, and um, we all should should try to live up to their standard. You know, it's inspiring. It, it is. Um, so you. One thing I found really interesting about your background is that you, your as you had mentioned, your master's is in photography, and you got your uh, your undergraduate is in graphic design. Is that right? So, how does that fit into writing poetry? Do you feel that it gives you, you know, a better handle on certain crafting techniques or certain advantages that others might not have, or 
How does that fit in? Well, you know, graphic design is all about taking elements and organizing them on a page and sort of subtly forcing the reader to read them in a certain order. That's sort of the essence of graphic design, right? Yeah. Order to chaos. Putting the eyes where you want them first and then second and then third and fourth, right? You are organizing information. Okay. Photography. Capturing a moment. That's it's poetry. I it's mean, poetry. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out it's poetry. And all I had to do was figure out which words went with all that. You know, I make it seem simple. But I do think that that is exactly how I approach the poetry is the snapshots in my mind. And then I'm taking the elements. Um, and they start out as sometimes they do start out as shapes and I place them on the page in order in, in, in the order of importance. And so that's often how my poetry ends up is um, I write them first of all, because this happened and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. And then I have to make the reader look where I want them to. So then I have to jumble it up because I realize that doesn't make a poem. We all know that we want to write real life, but lots of times the poem doesn't want that. The poem wants something else. And we have to give in to that, of course, to make it a better poem. Um, and so that's when I think that sort of the graphic design kicks in and I'm like, okay, now what would make this a better read? What would make this you know, more interesting to my reader? And that's when I you know, kind of use those organizational skills for lack of a better uh, metaphor there um, in, in getting things organized on the page. And when I was a young writer, lots of times I'd go to workshop because uh, I'm a member of the uh, Columbus Salon, uh, Rose Smith's group and Steve Abbott. Um, and I'd go to those workshops and they'd say, this is a lovely poem, but you need to, you need to move the first stanza to the middle, the third stanza to the top. And the last stanza is, you know, and it was always about the information being organized, you know, and uh, that was always such great feedback. And now that's exactly what I do after I finish writing, you know, a few drafts of the poem, then I start looking at whether the sequence is really the sequence, because even in real life, if that was the sequence, doesn't mean that's what the poem is asking for, right? Absolutely. So, um, yes, yes. <laughs> so the graphic design is a lot of the same thing. You have these elements and you're moving them around the page so you can get the best, the best for your buck, as they say in the graphic design business, you know, um, you want things to be orderly, but you also want them to be exciting and, uh, and you want people to be willing to read, you know? Um, so it's, it's about visual. And then again, getting back to the photography, just being that moment that you want to capture, because that's what a poem is. It's capturing moments and they're little bitty photographs, you know, so. That is astoundingly relevant. <laughs> that is, that was such a succinct answer and, and put everything into focus. Uh, do, you, do you look at a, at a finished poem and see like a finished picture like did you do you see like a layout and think you know this is is there a visual component for you sometimes there is and lots of times it's line breaks um I think I think I do pretty good in my line breaks and a lot of the time it's because it doesn't look right to me 
And then when I make it look right, I realize, oh yeah, that reads so much better. And it's, that's definitely the graphic designer in me wanting that rag to be perfect and, and that sort of thing. Um, and I do, I think I'm, I think I'm a very visual writer. I think I put a lot of image in my poems and I think that's the photography. I think that's the picture I do see. I like to be able to see where I am, you know, where, where the narrator is in the poem. I want people to be able to sit down there with me or stand there with me or lie there with me. You know, I want them to see, feel, smell, taste the grass, you know? So I hope I do that. I try really hard to do that. I, um, and then I, I think the other thing that I try to do is music. I like to put I like for there to feel like maybe there's some music in each poem. And by that, I just mean, you know, those little devices we put in that that help the reader get through the poem, you know, just kind of make their way through whether they're doing a little foxtrot or they're doing a a side-by-side or, you know, a slide, um, a waltz. Um, And I think that's because uh, music was so important uh, in our home. Uh, my daddy was a big Hank Williams fan. Um, we always had Ernest Tubb, Patsy Cline. Uh, not a big Loretta fan. My mama wasn't. Um, but uh, later on, I was into Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings and Black Sabbath. fascinated by iron man i was just thinking oh my god the future does not look bright um so (laughs) so um you know that's kind of what that's kind of what is going on in my head is how does this poem look visually and if it looks right to me visually probably the line breaks are good and i want to be able to see or feel the music in it and then, yes, I want people to be able to, ha- to have little, little scenarios or little synopses going on in their head or little paintings. I kind of call it paintings. Um, and they're seeing what I'm seeing, you know. Yeah. And that's what I go. That's what I go for anyway. I don't know that I always accomplish it, but it's certainly what I go for. Sure. Is, so is, is image your favorite crafting technique? I think it is. I think, I think if I have to say it, I, I suppose that is the favorite. I just really want people to feel like they're in the room or in the car or wherever I am. I want them there with me. Yeah. Well, that's excellent. Well, uh, would you like to read a poem to take us home? I would. Mm-hmm. This is so good of you. I really appreciate um, all this attention. I really do. This is just, um, uh, I'm just so honored. Just let me say that. So thank you so much for having me. Uh, this is called, this is kind of a fun one. The whole shebang up for debate. Today I gave a guy a ride. Caught in a cloudburst jogging down East Mill Street. Skinny, backpacked, newspaper, a makeshift shield. Unsafe under any circumstances. I don't know what possessed me. I make bad decisions and forgetful, cling to structure and routine like static electricity to polyester, a predicament of living under the facade I always add to myself. Said he needed to catch a go bus 
shaking off droplets before climbing in. He gabbed about Thanksgiving plans, his mom's cider-basted turkey, grandma's pecan-crusted pumpkin pie. It was a quick, masked ride. Bless you, he said, unfolding himself from the car. No awkward goodbyes, no what do I owe you? Just bless you in a backward wave. At the stop sign, my fingers stroked the dampness where he sat minutes before. Sometimes life embraces you so unconditionally, it shifts your body from shadow into a full-flung lotus of light. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, I feel so warm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this has been Poetry Spotlight, a production of the Ohio Poetry Association. Please follow the OPA on Twitter at Ohio Poetry and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ohio Poetry. A transcript of this episode can be found on the OPA's blog. Visit ohiopoetryassociation.org for more information. And Carrie, thank you so very much for taking the time to do this. It was my honor. Thank you so much, Jeremy.